I want to share some thoughts this morning out of that section in Hebrews, that section in Hebrews um, that talks about um, the word, uses the word discipline and chastisement and get some clarity on what that passage is really talking about. Because that's one of the passages that people who don't understand the finished work of Christ or the grace of God will run to that passage and say, yeah, but God's still going to punish you if you sin. And of course, it's not saying that, but we want to look at that very carefully because the way we're built, the natural mind, it defaults to thinking like that. The natural mind thinks, if I sin, God's not happy with me and he's going to punish me. And it takes all of the glory of God to renew our minds, to get us to a place that when we sin, we're not afraid of God and we're not thinking he's going to punish us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. In the new covenant, I will be merciful to all their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It takes all the power of the Holy Spirit and angels and God and the Lord himself to finally convince us that he's not holding us in our sins. It takes all the power of the Holy Spirit to show us the value that the Father places on the death of his only begotten. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Good news. Remember this, saints. You are not in union with Christ because you have stopped sinning. You are in union with Christ because he has stopped counting your sins. Never forget that. You might want to write that down. (laughs) You are not in union with Christ because you have finally, I have finally stopped sinning. No, I am in union with him because of what he did and he has stopped counting my sins. Now, immediately the religious mind goes, you can't tell people that. They'll just go sin all the time. Without that foundational truth, you will keep sinning all the time. The law is the strength of sin. The law is the strength of sin. Without that truth that he's not counting my sins against me, you will keep sinning the rest of your life and be miserable trying to earn your righteousness. They who seek to establish their own righteousness have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Christ, seeking to establish their own righteousness. But those who weren't even seeking righteousness found it. The Gentiles, because simply heard an awesome story and believed. So saints, remember that. We're not in union with him because we stopped sinning. We're not in union with him because we finally got our act together and we're, we're worthy of God being joined to us. We're not joined to him because we finally have reduced our sin from uh, 80% of the time to 10% of the time. Remember, God can only join himself to perfection. God can only join himself to a new creation who has no past. Can you create yourself again? Can the leopard remove its spots can you remove your past? Can you make yourself be born again? Can, you do, can I do any of these things? But God can, and he did. Behold the mystery of Christ, his death, his resurrection. Behold, a new day has dawned in him for all who believe. 
I love that scene in The Passion. I was telling Jeremy this the other day, that scene in The Passion where the Mel Gibson film where Jesus is carrying the cross and he stumbled, you know, and Mary is trying to reach her son, you know, and she's like in the, this corridor and in the film and he's, he stumbles and he's trying to pick up the cross again and, and he looks at his mother. His mother's in anguish, trying to, wishing she could reach out and help him. And he looked at his mother in the film and he said, he said, look, mother, I make all things new. I love that. That's why I started to cry in the movie. He said, look, look, mother, I make all things new. He made us new in him so he could be joined to us. He is not in union with you or me because I have stopped sinning. He's in union with me because he has stopped counting my sins. For God was in Christ. God was in Christ. Reconciling the whole world unto himself. Not counting their sins against them anymore. Behold, this truth must be at our very heart before we can understand any scripture that may seem to deviate from this. And I want to say that first because before we talk about these scriptures in Hebrews that talk about discipline and that kind of thing, you don't leave what we know here and change what we know to be true to try to interpret something that is not clear. You never, re, you never reinterpret or read... You never reinterpret what you know to be true in an effort to understand something that is not clear. You stay with what is clear and shine the light of that established truth and fact on the scriptures that seem to be unclear. And from that light, you get clarity. And then that way it's all consistent. It's, it's, it's cool. But the problem with so many believers... They're not established in the foundation. There is no other foundation that, that can be laid but that which has already been laid by God, which is Jesus himself and his work and what that means. A covenant where God no longer, no longer counts our sins against us. That foundation must be in place to interpret all scripture. And the problem with a schizophrenic church out there is because there's not a foundation on this truth. And so when you have some scripture that seems to be saying something contrary, they, they change what is said over here to accommodate the scripture they think is saying this over here, or they'll try to keep this over here and, and harmonize this over here, and it, 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 oil and vinegar. Old shirt with a hole in it, new shirt, old wine, new wine. They try to harmonize it. They try to join it, and it cannot be joined. That's the key. The key is it must be seen as something that is completely different. That's why the prophet said, consider not the things of old. Behold, I do a new thing. A new thing. Consider not the things of old. Behold, I do a new thing. The covenant that I cut with them when I brought them out of the land of Egypt shall not be like this covenant, Jeremiah said. It shall be a whole new covenant, not like the covenant of law, but a covenant of grace that the prophets prophesied would come. I love that prophecy in the prophets where the prophet said, and the prophet said, they shall shout grace, grace, grace upon it, and this mountain shall be removed. Isn't that a great verse? The Old Testament has these clues about this revelation that was coming. And they shall shout grace, grace, and the mountain shall be removed. So awesome. Lord, we just thank you so much for helping us see these things and 
I pray that I pray that you would just comfort us today. If anyone has any thought, just one little thought, that you are punishing them for their sins. As your son and daughter, as a believer, as one who has received your son who took our sin, I pray that that thought will be extinguished by the power of life, the power of the Holy Spirit. May there come such a renewal of the mind that the thought will never enter the mind again that some tragedy in their life or some heartache in their life or some difficult thing in their life or some thing that happened to them, whatever it may be, that they would never, ever, ever think again that maybe God punishing me. Help us see this awesome truth. Help us see that in the world we shall have tribulation, but we can be of good cheer for you have overcome the world. And as the Pharisees said and asked Jesus, why is this man lame? Is he lame because of his sin or his parents' sins? And Jesus said, neither. This is just an opportunity for me to manifest the glory of God. He's changed everything. He has turned the world upside down. Every problem, every heartache, every difficulty is an opportunity now in him to manifest the glory of God. Amen. Awesome. In Hebrews... The writer in Hebrews is, I see three big things the writer in Hebrews is trying to do to his readers or for his readers, the Jewish readers. Three things that he's trying to, to move them to by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Jewish person, the Jewish people um, were all about, what, all about the scene, the scene world. They had a temple they could see. They had a priesthood they could look at. They had robes they could look at the colors they had a, a lamb they could hold and look at. They had bulls and goats they could look at. They, they had a, a place they could look at to where the altar was, was uh, set up for the, the sacrifice of the animals. They saw a lot. They saw, which were supposed to be pictures of an unseen reality. As the scripture says in Hebrews, God said to Moses, build all of this according to the pattern in the heavens as a picture of the real this being or that which is being seen is being just a shadow or is just a shadow of the real. But the Jewish people for centuries had, didn't have the unseen. They had the seen to deal with. And so one of the things the Hebrew letter is trying to do is move the reader from the seen to the unseen, from the copies of the heavenly things to the heavenly things themselves, Hebrew says. From a temple made with hands of this creation to a temple in the heavens, to a, from a veil that was torn that could be seen to a veil that has been rent in a spiritual way where we can move in this life into another dimension in the spirit. From looking at the temple as the house of God to seeing themselves as 
the house of God as living stones of a living temple. See? So the the Holy Spirit emphasis in Hebrews, number one, was to convince these Jewish believers to move from this thinking, renew your mind from this thinking, repent or change your mind about this kind of thinking that it is not what the seen, but is the unseen. And you see this emphasis in the Paul's, Paul's letters where he says, look, not on that which is seen, but that which is unseen. For that which is seen is temporary, but that which is unseen is eternal. So the, one of the big things that the writer is trying to do is move the reader from the seen to the unseen. Another thing the writer was trying to do in this book, I believe, is, is help the Jewish people with the problem with the conscience. They, had a, they struggled with this gospel message because they, used, they, were, they were used to doing works to appease the conscience. They were used to doing works like taking the lamb to the temple. They were used to doing something to appease the conscience. They were used to, to uh, and to this day, um, so many Christians are really trying to appease a guilty conscience by going to church or giving to charity or doing good deeds, you know, just, just trying to appease a guilty conscience by dead works, Hebrews says. Why dead? Because no work can appease the conscience. Dead works. And they're dead because they're not works that come from him. They're not works. They're not, they're, they're not God's work, God's ultimate work. Because the only work that can ultimately cleanse the conscience is the work of Jesus himself. When he gave himself by the obedience of one man, by his death, every conscience can be cleansed. As Peter says, we have a good conscience now. Peter, a good conscience. Why? By the resurrection of Christ. See? Hebrews says, our conscience has been cleansed from dead works to serve the living God in the way he intended, which is a place of rest, where he himself is merely living his own life through us. Now, what does that mean to cleanse the conscience from a dead works? We talked about this before, but just real briefly, Romans 2 talks about every man having a conscience since the fall, and the conscience either accuses you of, of what you're doing wrong, or it praises you because you're doing something right. That's what, how the conscience works. The guilty conscience is cleansed from dead works through Christ because we no longer allow the conscience to accuse us because we don't act perfectly, nor do we allow the conscience to pat ourselves on the back when we do something good because our righteousness is not our own. It, it is a transcendent reality in Christ. We no longer live in the realm of the conscience. We joked about this, how, you know, Jiminy the Cricket, you know, let your conscience be your guide. That's, that's for Disney World. That's not reality. That's the human race. Let your, let your conscience be your guide. No, we have something far superior than the conscience. The conscience is going to accuse you when it should not, should not be accusing you, maybe, and praise you when maybe it should not be praising you. Because sometimes our good works are done out of pride or wrong motives or whatever. It's flesh. So what God did, he transcends the conscience and cleanses the whole board of trying to take care of this accusation or revel in this praise, cleansed from dead works to serve the living God, which means a rest as a son or a daughter in the spirit, in another reality, having a good conscience by the resurrection of Christ. Okay, that was a problem with the Jewish believers. Is it warm in here, you guys? Um, let's open the door. That was a problem with the... 
that was a problem with the, um, with the Jewish believers because they really were always used to doing something to appease that conscience. They weren't used to just, you know, like, and, and to this day, believers have a problem. We, when they blow it, when we just blow it, when I just blow it, there's a difficulty in the body of Christ to just say, well, that was really not Christ. That was really flesh. I really blew it. I reacted in anger or whatever it was. And our, our right response in the new covenant should be, God, thank you so much. Thank you. What a covenant. Thank you for not holding that sin against me. Thank you for teaching me how to put that behind me and learn from it and live by you. Thank you that I really want to manifest you. Thank you that I really have this growing desire to walk in the spirit all the time. Thank you that I do that, that's, that, I do that one thing. I forget that which is past and I go forward. Thank you. I remember you, Lord. I don't remember my sins. I take the bread and drink the wine and I remember, I remember, I remember you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that I can come boldly to a throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. Boldly, not fearfully. That's, a, that's our true response in the new covenant. It's a response of gratitude, of humility, of thankfulness, peace, joy, intimacy. All that he purchased for us. The enemy has no defense to that. And the shield of faith shall quench every fiery dart. Shield of faith. Because you believe that God did it. And contrary to religious thinking, this, this new way of thinking and this new life does not lead to a life of sinfulness and selfishness and fleshliness. But it leads to a release of the new creation. Putting off the deeds of the old man and putting on the deeds of the new man who is who is not becoming, but who is. Pretty awesome. Well, the third thing that the, the, um, the readers of Hebrew, Hebrews, I think, struggle with, not only going from the seen to the unseen, and not only how to deal with this conscience problem, because they were used to doing things to appease their conscience, the third thing that they struggle with was, you know, stuff that happened in their life. And this stuff, they would just default to that kind of thinking that it must be because I'm doing something wrong. It must be because I, I sinned or, or whatever. And there are some times when things happen to us, it is because we did something wrong. But those are the things that Peter talks about when he says, do not suffer as an evildoer, as a thief, as a meddler. I mean, if you go to 7-Eleven and rob 7-Eleven, you're going to probably go to jail. God did not send you to jail. But you are suffering as an evildoer because there are consequences to sin in this natural realm. Peter is warning the, the believer, don't get stuck in this system because you, you know, do something stupid. Because the system is set up, this is a system of law. This world is run by law, has to be, because they have no life. You have been delivered from the law and delivered from this realm of death because now you and I can live by life. And that life fulfills all the laws of men. 
The life has no problem with the laws of men. The laws of men says, pay your taxes, we'll pay our taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. The law of the Spirit walks in love. Love has no problem with not beating up somebody, <laughs> which is a call, assault and battery in this world. It's genius. God's love fulfills every law, Paul says. If there be any law, love fulfills it all. So you have been You've been brought to a transcendent union with the God of love who made all law, who spoke all law. But the laws are not for you. For we know this, that whatever the law says, it says it to those who are under the law and not those who are not under the law. It doesn't speak to me. It doesn't say anything to me. I don't need to hear from the law not to kill because the love of God is in my heart. I don't need to hear from the law don't steal because the love of God is in my heart as a new creation that wants me to give to others. Not just not steal, not just not take their stuff, but I want to have enough stuff so I can give them some stuff. I want to be a giver, see? I don't need the law to tell me to, you know, all these things. But there are consequences in this realm if we in this body manifest a fleshly act like robbing 7-Eleven. And that's what Peter's talking about. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't do this fleshly stuff because there are things in place in this world of law that has to be in place that there might be peace in a fallen world so that people don't come barging into your house at night and take your stuff and hurt you because there is fear in those people that would do that of judgment. And God set it up that way that you might have peace. He's not worried about, he's not worried about his kids doing that kind of stuff. He's worried about the sons of the devil doing that kind of stuff. And they will do it. It's their nature to do it. So it's important to have law. Law is for the unrighteous, the scripture says. It's it's important to have judges and law enforcement. It's important to have enforcers of the law, as Romans says, for they are appointed by God and they bear not the sword in vain. They're there by God so that you can live in peace. God wants a system of law for this fallen world because they do not have his life nor his love. They don't know the Father nor him, and that's why law is good, but it's not for you. You see that? But if you step over into their world, and if I step over into their world and do something stupid and rob 7-Eleven, I'm under their jurisdiction. Not jurisdiction in the sense that I've lost my status with God as a son, not that I've lost my reality, that I've, I'm free from law, but now I've stepped into their realm and there are consequences. And, but even in that, God is so powerful that he can supersede. He's the final arbitrator, final word. He is beyond the Supreme Court. He's at the top. And if we call out to him, we, we, miracles will happen. Things that, even though we do stupid stuff, cases will get dismissed or whatever because God's grace and mercy, he knows that's not your place to be in that. He doesn't want you to sit in a DUI class. He doesn't want you to, to, to go to jail for a year because you stole from 7-Eleven. You see? God is so wanting us to be free from this world and this, this realm and this, this um, the whole concept of do good and get blessed and do bad and get punished. It's not your world anymore. It's not my world anymore. You can put all kind of things in that statement. The statement that says you're not in union with God because you have stopped sinning, but you're in union with God because he has stopped counting sins. You can put this in that statement too, that you have the favor of God. The favor of God, not because you have stopped sinning, but because he has stopped counting our sins. 
as Jesus is, so are we in this world. He sees us as his own son. John 17, he loves us as much as his own son. You and I have the favor of God, not because we have stopped sinning, but because he has stopped counting our sins. This must be our foundation. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But there are still consequences to stupid stuff. And Peter warns the believer, don't get, stuff, don't get tied up with that kind of stuff. Don't suffer as an evildoer because you're not an evildoer. But even if we do slip up and make some mistake and it, this world tries to punish us in their legal system or whatever, we can call out to God and he does miracles to get us out of the mess. But we learn from it. That's, see, that's, that's why it's ridiculous that people accuse us, accuse us who teach this message of the finished work of Christ as being um, antinomian. You might have heard that term before. You know, oh, they're just antinomians. That's, that's the Reformed theologian's way of just, just dismissing all this awesome stuff God is teaching us. Oh, they're just antinomians. They, they just don't believe in the law. They, they, you can do whatever you want. No, I'm a lawyer, for crying out loud. God has a lawyer preaching the finished work of Christ. Get a clue. I'm not antinomian. I understand what the scripture teaches. The law is good and needed for the natural, for the un, uh, unregenerate, for the fallen. It's imperative that we have a system of laws, a, a, a nation of laws and not of men, not dictators telling us what to do, but a nation of laws so that we can flourish. See, the genius of America is not, it's not our constitution so much the Constitution is really a miracle. It's interesting that in the book of Isaiah, it says that, that God is king, he's lawgiver, and he's judge. In one verse, it says, for God is king, he's lawgiver, and he's judge. And the Holy Spirit gave those men, those founding fathers, such wisdom that they, the Spirit of God constructed a system of government where there's a king, a president, there's a congress, a law-giving body, and there's a Supreme Court, the judges. From the mind of God through those men, those humble men that said, if we don't pray about wisdom before we write this constitution, it's going to be a mess. And they prayed and God answered. But the genius of America is not really the constitution. The genius of America is that God said, I'm going to give them a system that will be a system of freedom. Great, great freedom. A nation of laws and not of men not of dictators and pharaohs, a nation of freedom. And they can choose their own destiny. The genius of America are the people, the 51% who go to the polls and vote out of the spirit of God, out of the wisdom of God. Because if 51% go to the polls and don't have the mind of God, this nation is in the tank. Because it's not the Constitution that is our hope. It is the Spirit of God, the gospel of Christ, in the body and in this nation. The answer to America is not really a better senator or a better president or a new Constitution or another amendment. The answer for America has always been here. The gospel of the finished work of Christ. As this word spreads and people get new hearts... And they actually go to the polls and vote and act on what God has set up for this awesome country, no, no, not like no other country in the world since the beginning of time. Then the fruits will, be, will come forth. 
As they say, all that it takes for evil men to prosper is that good men do nothing. All it takes for this world to prosper is that the sons and daughters of God do nothing. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. But what is it any good if the salt has lost its savor? And what good is it if the light is put under a basket? We live in a most awesome country at a most awesome time. But it's so cool that it's in your hands to change the country. It's in your hands, in your mouth, and in your heart. Speak it. Speak of his love. Speak of his work. Speak of the finished work of Christ that the Spirit of God might be given to all who believe. And watch how that manifests in a new country. In a country that people care for each other. In a country that wants freedom. A country that rewards hard work and honesty and, and integrity and not just a handout from the government. All that stuff. I don't know how I got off on this. But, but it's, it's really, it's, it's truth about our country. Our genius is not in the Constitution. It's in the fact that God set it up that we choose our own destiny. We choose our own destiny. And he will always be with the body of Christ whether this country goes down the tank or not. I mean, even when the, when the plagues hit Egypt, the saints in, in Egypt were protected. They were shielded by God in that, in that midst of the uh, plagues in Egypt. So I'm not worried about me or us but for the country, for our children and our children's children, that's the genius of America. It's the gospel. Because that's what changes men's hearts and that's what results in a difference at the poles, a different direction, a different place where the sail is put up for the ship, for the journey. As, as Reagan said, America was destined to be a city set on a hill. And I, I believe he's right. The true city set on the hill, of course, is the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven manifested through people who will believe and and use this system of freedom that God has given us is, is awesome. Should have said this before the election. <laughs> anyway. Okay, I tell you what. Next time, we'll get to the, these verses. If you want to start reading chapter 12, this whole thing about stuff that happens to us, we just talked about consequences for you know, natural, sinful stuff that Peter warned against, don't get messed up with that stuff. Don't suffer as an evildoer. That's, that's a no-brainer. We should, we should understand that. You know, anybody who says, hey, I'm, I, I'm not under the law. I can go in and, and steal from 7-Eleven, and my daddy's going to protect me, and I, they can't put me in jail because I'm a son of God, and I can go in and steal. And, no. That's very immature, and that's very ignorant of what's real. And Peter was clear about that. Peter said, don't do that. Don't suffer like an evildoer. You're not one of those. So next Sunday, the Lord willing, I want to talk about this chapter 12 in Hebrews, which, which is all about this. He talks about what discipline is and what, what chastisement is or you know, what, what it really is and, and how to understand these verses. And you're going to be amazed. You're going to be amazed, I believe. Well, you probably won't. But, but you're going to see, hopefully, that the whole point of chapter 12 was to convince these Hebrew believers that the stuff, the bad stuff that was happening to them had nothing to do with sin at all. In fact, as you read chapter 12, if you want to take a look at it before next Sunday, he compares what Jesus went through with what they're going through. And he's trying to encourage them to not 
Let the feeble hands hang down. Do not get discouraged. And we know Jesus was without sin, as Hebrew says. So what, what, what he went through had nothing to do with sin in Jesus' life. So he's taking the life of Jesus and saying, this is what he went through. Let me explain now what you're going through. See it in, in the true light of Christ. And it'll be so encouraging. And you'll see something that maybe you've never seen before. It's very cool. It's very, very cool. We're tying up every loose end. The Spirit of God is tying up every loose end, every scripture that we're not sure of, every place we're not sure of. It's becoming crystal clear. As John said, the true light is now shining. The true light is now shining. And even now, John says, this world is passing away. As we see these things, we shall experience a shining within us brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Gross darkness shall cover the earth, the scripture says, but his light shall be upon you. Arise and shine for the glory of God is risen upon you. And that is the mark that you belong to him, Peter says, that this world is opposed to you in every way. It's the mark that you belong to him. And that's why Peter says, rejoice in this suffering, whatever it may be, for it's the evidence of the spirit of Christ which rests upon you. Awesome encouragement from chapter 12. Just the opposite of the way it's been taught. Duh. (laughs) Are we surprised? If you don't get the foundation right, I mean, if you don't get the foundation right, you can ruin every scripture, really. Every single scripture is ruined if you don't get the truth. And that's why Jesus had to open their minds to understand the scriptures. In the last chapter of Luke, these Jewish followers of his who knew the scriptures, he had to open their minds. It was a, a miracle. He says, the scripture says, he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. So scriptures that used to condemn them suddenly became all about him. Strike the shepherd and the flock shall scatter. Wow. Hebrews 12 talks about a striking on the sons of God. Did he strike the shepherd because of his sin? Did God allow judgment to come to his son because of his sin? See it? This is your hour in the power of darkness, Jesus said when they took him in the garden. God allowing darkness to take him was God striking his own shepherd, God striking his own son, in a sense, allowing it to happen. For he took on the sin of the world and the judgment of God. You see it? And Hebrews 12 is, is, is like that. And he's comparing what Jesus went through and what we go through and the true way of reading these Old Testament scriptures in light of Christ. Very cool. Love you guys. We are not in union with him because we have stopped sinning. We are in union with him because he has stopped counting our sins against us. Lord, thank you so much for this awesome reality. Help us, Lord, be so strong in you and in the truth and 
Let our roots go down deep and be rooted in Christ Jesus, that we might be built up in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this new understanding that you're giving us in the body of Christ worldwide. Thank you for this awesome, awesome peace. For we now stand in this grace with peace, peace from God and peace, the peace of God. For you, Lord, you have become our peace. Fear not, little flock, fear not. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, the other realm, the other reality, the reality of heaven. He who spared not his only son, will he not with him freely give you all things? Amen.